0: My Govanin, Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and I've done a couple of previous videos on the whole notion of fate and free will in Middle-earth. The first one was a general discussion of the topic in terms of things that Tolkien said and some of the broader scope of materials, especially in the Silmarillion. Then I did one focusing on Turin Turambar's story. Now I'm going to do one focusing on The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and show where we can see evidence of providence working in those stories and how that interacts with free will choices by the main characters, and see at the end how that all kind of works out. Now, I'm going to be doing at least one more video in the same vein, because I'm going to look at a modern movie which has similar types of themes and compare and contrast it with how Tolkien has those same themes in his story if you can guess the video the movie that i'm thinking of you you can put that in the comments below and and you know maybe i'll share some brownie points or something but i'm going to keep that under wraps for now until i can actually get it out that said that may not be my next video because the next video may actually be the long-awaited sequel to uh the girl next gondor and my video on Tolkien and the Critics. We're going to be looking at Epic Pooh, the article by Michael Moorcock that may be coming out in the next video from this one, so if not it'll probably be the one after that, but keep a look out. Well, I know a lot of you have been looking forward to that, but for now let's take a look at providence or fate and free will in the stories of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Starting with The Hobbit, naturally enough, There's a lot of instances in The Hobbit where we get strong hints at something like fate playing a role in the events that lead up to the final battle of five armies at the very end of the story. And a lot of these have to do with what seem to be just really incredible strokes of luck. So, for instance, you've got... Things like, you know, they were going to go one route through the Misty Mountains, and then they got sidetracked because they got captured by the goblins. But it turned out good because actually the route they were going to take didn't really work. And then when they tried to go through Mirkwood, they took a route based on what they were told was the only really open road left. That didn't work out well because they ended up getting captured by elves and then ended up going down the river in barrels, and it turned out that was kind of a good thing for the same reason. And there's just a number of examples of this, which if you really want a good layout of all of that, Corey Olson's, i.e. the Tolkien professor, uh, he does his exploring the, the Hobbit, and he really covers a lot of these in detail. So if you just really want to go through the whole thing and catch all of these and like see them all in all their glory, that, that's a really good way to do it. Of course, it's kind of interspersed among talking about a lot of other themes in the book. But point being, it's really it's really hard to escape this idea that Bilbo is just super lucky, or the group as a whole is super lucky. Bilbo, of course, also has his fair share of personal luck. He finds the ring, which helps him out in numerous instances in the halls of the Elven King with the spiders, you know, creeping into Smaug's lair. Numerous things like that. You know, Bilbo gets super lucky in a lot of different ways throughout the story. And the narrator never goes quite so far as telling us that all of this is kind of orchestrated. But at the very end, Gandalf pretty much lays it out without saying it by telling Bilbo, Surely you don't imagine that all of your you know, escapes and everything were managed by luck for your sole benefit. You're a very fine fellow, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, but after all, you're only a small person in a wide world. And the obvious message that Gandalf is giving here is, this wasn't just you getting lucky. There was more behind this than you just, you know, having strokes of good fortune. There was more behind all of that that was making it, you know, kind of a, reach a planned outcome. This whole idea gets a very, very strong reaffirmation and recontextualization in the Quest for Erebor material that Tolkien partially puts in the appendices in The Lord of the Rings, but also is partially in other versions published in Unfinished Tales. Because what Tolkien explains, or Gandalf, you know, Tolkien through Gandalf, is that Gandalf, in the years prior to the quest for Erebor, had had in mind, like, we need to do something about this dragon thing. Smaug is going to be a real problem if the Necromancer and or Sauron, you know, depending on what stage, they may not have known that Sauron was in fact a Necromancer. If any of these forces align and try to make a, a, a an alliance and, and really do damage to the northern parts of Middle-earth, it's going to get really nasty. We need to have a strong northern kingdom, Dale slash Erebor, and we don't want to have a dragon on our doorstep if things ever go back to, you know, like what they were in the last alliance where you had open warfare with Sauron. That would be really disastrous. So he's thinking about this, and then he just happens to run into Thorin in Bree. A chance meeting, as we call it in Middle-earth, Gandalf says. Um, And so he recontextualizes this whole thing as the entire quest came about through a lucky meeting with Thorin, and Gandalf took charge of that situation, was like, aha, I have a way that I can make this work now. I will enlist the aid of somebody who can help these dwarves recapture their kingdom, thus killing two birds with one stone. A, we get rid of Smaug. B, we can set up the revived you know, dwarven kingdom of Erebor, and everything is going to be better off, and it turns out even luckier than that, because not only do they do all of that, but they also wipe out a huge amount of the goblins in the northern parts of Middle-earth in the Battle of Five Armies, thanks in large part to the intervention of Beorn and the eagles, which the eagles are like, that, that's just fate intervening. I mean, let's be honest, that is, the eagles might as well be named Providence, because that's kind of what they are. It's Providence stepping into the story to make things happen. So there's a lot of things in The Hobbit that really point to this. Like I said, the only real explicit or semi-explicit reference in The Hobbit itself is Gandalf basically telling Bilbo, this wasn't just luck for your sole benefit, dude. this That's not really what this was. It gets a little more explicit in The Lord of the Rings. Because here we actually do get Gandalf sitting with Frodo in the parlor at Bag End and explaining to him in The Shadow of the Past all of the history of the ring and all of this stuff... And he says, you know, Bilbo finding the ring, that was the result of some will besides the will of the ring maker. And it was, you know, it's Bilbo was meant to find the ring and not by its maker. Which means you also were meant to have it. And that may be an encouraging thought. Meant by who? Gandalf says a power other than the ringmaker. That power can't just be you know, nothing, and it, mean it, ha- it would have to be something presumably even more powerful than Sauron himself, because if if it was not more powerful than Sauron, why would Sauron's will in getting the ring back lose out to seemingly a just chance encounter where, where Bilbo stumbles across a ring in the dark? You know, that doesn't even make sense. So B- Gandalf is putting his finger on something very, very significant about the way these events played out he's basically telling Frodo look all of this has come to pass specifically with the end in mind that you should have the ring and be able to do something with it not just blind chance leading to all this stuff now Gandalf doesn't have any proof that that's what what is going on obviously but it's kind of implied by the whole the ring wants to get back to Sauron and it's malevolent malevolent and corrupting and all this other stuff, you know, it's one thing for the ring to fall off of Gollum and try to find a new owner, but then why does it happen to be Bilbo of all people? You know, as Frodo even says to Gandalf, wouldn't an orc have suited it better? You know, kind of in a joking but also kind of, you know, (sighs) resentful kind of tone. Gandalf... Kind of rebukes him from the resentfulness, and he's like, This is not a laughing matter this is you know this is serious, but Frodo, of course, has a point; it would have suited an orc it would have suited it better had it been picked up by an orc because then it would have more likely ended up back to Sauron and that's why I say the power at work involved in having Bilbo find the ring as opposed to some other creature that must be stronger than Sauron's will. There are of course many other instances of People saying things or events in the story that lend further credence to this idea of fate being involved in the outcome of various different parts of the story. Elrond, when he summons the council to you know meet together, unlike in the movie where Elrond basically implies that he's actually summoned all these people from distant lands, they've all come there by seeming chance in the book. And he he makes a note of this and he says you've all come here in the nick of time seemingly just by accident but believe me when i tell you that this is this is providential this is something that has been orchestrated so that we here in this council are to decide the fate of middle earth and you know by defi- by deciding what to do with the ring i mean he basically straight out says that so elrond is you know very explicitly making the same kind of point that gandalf was getting at in the power of Bag End, and Galadriel will even make a similar point when she says that the quest stands on the edge of a knife, stray but a little and it will fail, she's implying something behind that, which is, you know, there is a path that will probably get you to where you need to go, but your choices may mess it up, but it's, you know, there is a path laid out before you, and it's, you know, it's one that's kind of destined in, in some sense. And then we even just have strange random events, like when the wind changes at the Battle of the Palenor Fields. The Rohirrim arrive, and they start to notice the wind changing, which the the Druidine, the, the men of the, the woods, they notice it first. But it's, you know, the, the riders start to notice it. They start to taste like a salt tang in the air because the wind is coming up from the south, driving the clouds away, making things better in a whole lot of different ways and they arrive just in time to stop the entrance of the witch king into the gates of Minas Tirith with not only the wind blowing away the smoke but also a cock crowing at and then the hell the horns of the Rohirrim responding you know not intentionally obviously they couldn't have heard that you know a rooster cock-a-doodle-doo but all these events kind of conspire out of nowhere to bring all of this about, and then at the same time, you know, relatively speaking, Aragorn is coming up with the fleet of black ships, which is also, you know, they've been working against the stream for however long they've had those boats, and they haven't had any wind to help them, but that wind carries them the last bit of the way and allows them to arrive just in time to really turn the tide of battle. So you have events like this that. You know, there's no way that there's any kind of just mere chance to this. It's way too lucky. I've actually kind of addressed this point in a, a video that I did on the movie Passengers, and I'll link to that in the description below as well, because I very much address this topic of these seemingly really lucky events happening. And in the movie Passengers, it all just seems a little bit too convenient the, the movie's enjoyable, don't get me wrong, but the movie itself just has so many things go just right, just when they need to, but there's nothing behind it to give you the idea that this is orchestrated for the benefit of the protagonists by some higher power. And so in that sense, it just seems like that's just too unrealistic. Tolkien, on the other hand, gives us very strong hints that there really is somebody behind it that's orchestrating some of these events, and that's why it's a much more satisfying look into this kind of world because if you're if you're just getting that lucky all the time you know a gambler's lucky streak happens but it never lasts you know i mean that's that's kind of the whole problem of gambling right eventually the house wins good luck only lasts so long but then in this story we get lots of really lucky breaks And Gandalf and Elrond and all these other characters are telling us they're not just lucky breaks. It's not, you know, you can count on, in some sense, these things continuing to happen because it's not mere luck. And that's why it's not so unrealistic when all the things just happen to go right. And that's why when Gollum takes the ring from Frodo at Mount Doom and manages to get himself killed with the ring in hand... That also is not luck. There's a certain amount of fate and providence playing into that as well. And I've done a video even on that topic, which I can link as well. So, I mean, there's just tons of different elements to this involving things that are seemingly either planned or guided in how the events turn out. So that's the fate side. But let's look at the choices side and the free will side of this equation. Going back to The Hobbit now, we, of course, have several major choices that Bilbo has to make. Many of the choices he makes are kind of, you know, based on what Tolkien would say in his own essay on fate and free will, not really free will choices. His choices are kind of made for him, in a sense. But there are very significant choices that he makes that are definitely not made for him. And one of the first and most important for both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is the choice not to stab Gollum in the back when he has him you know, at a disadvantage while he's wearing the ring and about to exit the Goblin Tunnels, and instead he decides to jump over Gollum. This decision becomes so critical for the rest of the story, because for the rest of the story, Gollum will play a huge role and eventually save Middle-earth by accident, so we might say. And it's this choice by Bilbo which Gandalf will harp on later and say it's because he chose pity that the ring affected him less, And for that reason, we can also assume that it's because he made that choice that he was able to give it up, needing Gandalf's self, of course. And it's because of that choice that Frodo, therefore, inherits the ring. And it's because of Frodo's own choices in a similar vein, not killing Gollum later on, that will lead to him also having, you know, a better ability to resist the ring's corrupting influence because he's not making the bad choices either. Bilbo also has to make some other very significant choices in the Hobbit. He has to choose to endanger himself by taking the Arkenstone and then giving it away to the Elf King and all them so that they can try to bargain with Thorin. And while the ploy doesn't ultimately work, it does have a significant effect on the story because it gets Bilbo out of, you know, the the Lonely Mountain and into, you know, the, the group with Gandalf and the elves and the men of Uh, Lake Town and all that. And ultimately, it does kind of serve as a major turning point in the sense that Thorin has to deal with this seeming betrayal, but then he eventually turns around and comes out and joins the battle and all this other stuff. So even though it seems like the choice doesn't really matter, it matters for Bilbo's character. Bilbo is putting himself again, in danger. At first he kept it because, dang, that's a pretty rock, and I kind of like it. But then the giving away and telling Thorin, yeah, that was me, by the way, uh, doing that was his attempt to try to resolve everything peacefully in a very Hobbit-like fashion, right? He's trying to be very business-like in a sense, which is how he's described early on in the story, He's doing it in that way of trying to make a business transaction out of it so that everybody ends up happy. It doesn't work, but it's him following his better angels rather than falling into the kind of greed which he was kind of slipping into and which Thorin had completely slipped into. And so that also kind of saves his character. So these kinds of decisions make a big impact he also had to make the choice to go down into Smaug's lair like the the text is very clear that that was maybe the hardest decision he ever made and the most important because going on required a tremendous amount of courage he's walking into a dragon's lair he doesn't know if there's a live dragon down there and if there is he could very well end up dead but if he had never gone in there none of the events that followed probably would have happened So Bilbo has to make these choices. Fate is kind of helping him along the way, but he has to make the decisions to follow through the path that fate has put him on. So, and we can even, in the Quest of Erebor stuff, look and see how Gandalf's choices also fit this same mold. Gandalf is given an opportunity by fate when he meets Thorin by chance, seemingly, but he takes advantage of that. He grabs fate and by the horns, and decides, you know what, I'm going to run with this, and he lets his intuition guide him, and says, I will get you a burglar, and he picks Bilbo, and he doesn't know why, but it's because he's, you know, he's, he may be embodied, but he's still a Maya, and he still has some connection to, like, you know, greater knowledge than he really would have if he was just a human, and he lets that help him make decisions, which seem weird at the time, but ultimately lead to the success that we know he gets in the hobbit so all of these things are ways that the story lets the characters get into positions but then it's up to the characters themselves to do the right thing to make the right calls to make sure that the intended outcome actually happens and then we get to lord of the rings and of course we have tons more examples of this for example in that parlor meeting with gandalf at bag end gandalf very explicitly puts it on frodo's shoulders you have to decide what to do gandalf isn't going to force him to do anything he couldn't really force him to do anything without causing more harm than good because of the ring's involvement he can't force frodo to do something with it without probably breaking frodo's will he had to convince bilbo with everything he had to do you know to give it up and leave it with frodo and it was probably only because he was leaving it with frodo that he was able to do that so gandalf very explicitly puts it in frodo's lap and says look here's all the facts what are you going to do about it even though and this is something that in i think it's in the exploring the lord of the rings series but it might have been in a another Lord of the Rings lecture by Corey Olsen, he puts a lot of emphasis on this. He's like, if you think about it, there's really not many options. Gandalf has already made it clear the ring has to be destroyed, and there's only probably one place you can do it. So it's not like he's actually leaving Frodo a whole lot of options, but he still very emphatically places it within Frodo's decision what to do. So Frodo has to actually make that choice on his own, and that has to be the case because, A, if Gandalf tried to force it because of the ring's influence, that would be really bad, but also because if Frodo is the one choosing of his own free will to do what he's supposed to do, that means he's putting himself on the right path, and that will improve their odds of getting where fate wants them to go. Similarly, at the Council of Elrond, Frodo has to be the one to step up and claim the task of taking the ring to Mount Doom. And this is another one where seemingly the decision is kind of made for him. Elrond, and this is another thing that Cory Olsen points out, Elrond has already kind of made it clear, like, small hands must do some things because the greater are busy elsewhere. And... You know, we don't want big and powerful people handling this ring because it's dangerous and this kind of thing. So he's already almost kind of implied, like, we need a hobbit to do this, which is why Bilbo, of course, steps up and said, I see what you're getting at here. Bilbo, the silly hobbit, started this and he better finish it. Well, Bilbo's the wrong person for the job, but he has the right idea because it is a hobbit that needs to do it. Frodo is, in fact, the perfect person to complete the task, but it has to be left to Frodo to choose to take that on of his own free will. Because, again, if it's forced on him, that's going to create more problems than it will solve. It's just, that's just the way it goes. Frodo, of course, also has to choose, like Bilbo did, to have pity on Gollum. And there's a sense in which you can look at that decision and say, He didn't have a whole lot of free will in that decision because Gandalf had already kind of prepped him for it and told him the importance of it and all that. But Frodo does seem to be choosing this in a situation which puts him at so much personal risk that you can really not do other than assume there's some real free will choice here. Sam is very much for let's just tie him up and leave him or kill him or whatever it is. And Frodo's like, well no, I really do pity him now that I see him, and even though if I let him go loose, I am risking having my neck wrung, I'm going to do it, because that is, you know, that's what pity is telling me to do. And again, you know, and and this is where it gets really interesting, because when Gandalf first talks about this, and he says, you know, don't be too eager to deal out death in judgment, he just kind of leaves it there. And then when Frodo remembers it in the context of looking at Gollum and trying to decide what to do, he actually says, he doesn't say, he remembers Gandalf telling him this, but he adds a little bitty line saying, fearing for your own safety. And there is that, like he's, he's it's not really clear if Tolkien maybe meant to go back and add that part into the original quote or whether he's just remembering it different. You know, because of the situation, or he's, you know, reading words into Gandalf that were kind of implied, whatever it is, but the point being, that little line, fearing for your own safety, is actually rather crucial, because that is precisely the way the ring operates on its owners. The ring constantly, and we see this multiple times whenever Frodo is in bad situations early on in the book, it's constantly out of fear that he uses the ring and gets into trouble. He almost puts it on when the ring wraith is nearby in the Woods of the Shire. He almost puts it on when he's in the, the Barrow Whites, Barrow Downs. Uh, there's just the so many instances where he almost uses it or does use it out of fear. And he's trying to protect himself. And he keeps having these inner monologues with himself. Like in the Barrow Downs, he's like... Gandalf will admit I had no other choice like there's nothing else I can do and he's imagining himself running free over the hills and leaving his friends behind because there was just nothing he could do and you know these rationalizations but it's all about self-preservation and preservation of the possession of the ring he's putting both of those things at risk when he lets Mm -hmm. Gollum go free and by free of course I mean like free of being tied up but he is really risking a lot by doing that. And so by putting aside the kind of fear and rationalization that the ring would naturally induce in him, that is another choice he is making, which is rejecting the power of the ring. And that is crucially important. And of course it pays off in the end because he finally does get to the the crack of doom and can't throw it in. And it's only because he spared Gollum before that the quest is completed. So... Again, that is fate bringing him to where he needs to be, but his decision ends up being so critical to the completion of the quest because without it, you know, fate would have to take a much heavier hand if it was going to actually get done. So it's a very interesting way that these two things intertwine in these stories fate and choices, you know, the fate. Put you where you need to be, but the choices are left to you to do the right thing once you're in the position that you are, you know, meant to be in. And a lot of that comes down to Gandalf being like, well, you were meant to find, you know, to have the ring, and Bilbo was meant to have it. Why? Because those are the kinds of people who are, you know, you can most trust with that kind of responsibility, I almost said power there, but it's not really power that they're being trusted with. So this idea that fate and free will both play a role gets really, really heavy when you really look at the details in these stories. So I hope you enjoyed that analysis of looking at how fate and free will both play roles in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings And it's a really delicate balance there because you have to weigh one against the other and see how one affects the other. And looking at this in relation to what we talked about with Turin, Turin is constantly doing the screw-up thing. He's kind of the mirror reverse of Bilbo and Frodo. He is the one who is put in positions by fate and then he completely screws up any opportunities he has by making bad decisions. Frodo and Bilbo consistently make good decisions, and it pays off for them. Turin's decisions, they don't pay off, they pay him back, you might say. And so, it's a really interesting study in contrasts to look at both of those kind of stories and see how the idea of your free will, much as your life might be controlled by forces outside your control, your free will still has a huge bearing on where you end up. So... Really interesting comparison. Hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please do give it a thumbs up. Share it around. Please subscribe and click that bell icon if you want to catch all my content in the future. I'm also on Rumble and Odyssey and have podcast versions of these. You can find me at Twitter at JRRTLore, and you can support me over at Patreon. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namaste.